Hey everyone, 2022 was absolutely crazy and I definitely got behind on the podcast if you haven't noticed, but I'm so excited to be getting episodes out that are long overdue. But because of such, some of the information may be a little bit out of date. So right at the top of the show, I want to recommend you give our first guest, Eliza Stott, a follow on all of her social media, which are always linked below, and check out the amazing things that she and the Women in Wildlife organization have done since this episode was recorded. Cannot wait to get new episodes, well, old to me, new to you, I guess, episodes out for everyone to listen to and continue to highlight the amazing people that we have within this hobby and within the scientific community. Thanks as always for your support. Thanks for the motivation you give me, and thanks for being awesome people. Enjoy the episode. Hey friends, and welcome to the Modern Medusa podcast. Welcome back to the Modern Medusa podcast. This is your host, Dominique DeFalco of DeFalco Reptiles. I'm super excited to speak with our guest today. It is a little bit different. We're not going to be focused on reptiles as much, but we're going to be talking with Eliza Stott. Eliza is a zookeeper from Australia. She is also working on some parasite research on Australian animals that we'll talk a little bit about. And also she is the founder of Women in Wildlife, which is an incredible organization that's focused on highlighting women who are working with wildlife and towards conservation efforts. So can't wait to talk to her more about that. But let's just kind of get started and talk about who you are. So hello, Eliza. How are you? Hello. I'm good. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. I'm so excited. This was like such a, a mess <laughs> trying to trying to organize. And so I'm glad we finally got it together. Definitely. Yeah, especially because you're leaving tomorrow for how long? Yes. Uh, four months. <laughs> oh my God. What are you doing for four months? Are you doing research? Yeah, sort of a little bit of both research and husbandry. But first, I'm going to Heron Island, which is like a small island off Queensland in Australia. That's research-based and with marine life. And the second one is with turtles. It's like a turtle rescue, rehabilitation and release sort of program. Oh my gosh. Well, we'll definitely get into that more because that's just amazing. But before we get kind of into the specifics of like, you know, the the research that you're doing and stuff, just kind of, can you introduce yourself? Tell me who you are, what you do, just a little bit more than my very brief overview of reciting your LinkedIn. <laughs> cool. So my name is Eliza. I'm 24 years old from Melbourne in Australia. Yeah. I grew up in the city, really. My parents were vets. So I always had a lot of animals around, but I didn't really sort of find my love for the environment and wildlife probably until a little bit later until I went to uni and um, volunteered with wildlife and traveled was probably the biggest one. Yeah. So I really found my love through that. And I studied zoology at uni. Yeah. As I said, just volunteered a lot and yeah, did my honors, as you said, in parasites and wildlife. I've been working as a zookeeper yeah, with Australian natives. So that's pretty much in a nutshell what I've been doing. <laughs> that's so cool. I think if anyone has listened to the podcast, like any somewhat regularly, I am absolutely terrified, but also incredibly fascinated yeah. with parasites. So I have a lot of questions, but before we get into that, 
it's super cool that both your parents were veterinarians. Talk to me about growing up like that. Was it more uh, domestic animals that they were working with or was it more wildlife vet-based? What were they doing? So um, mostly small animals. So mum owns a small animal practice in Melbourne, but yeah, they've both sort of doubled with large animals, but not so much wildlife. But um, mum had a nurse when I was growing up that was really into wildlife. So she did a lot of the rescues and brought them into the clinic and mom treated them, everything like that. So I, when I was sick or sick sometimes, not really sick, <laughs> I go and follow yeah the wildlife nurse around to rescues and I yeah fell in love with them through there. So it's a really big part of it, I guess, as well. Okay. That's so cool. So what kind of wildlife, it's, it's always hilarious to me because I am from the US and like wildlife rescue to me is like a box turtle or a squirrel. Like what kind of wildlife <laughs> would your mother help with if they needed uh, some sort of rescue and rehab? Yeah, I mean, so where mom's clinic is, it's in Williamstown. So that's sort of on the beach. And so there was a lot of seabirds, even penguins, sharks. One time I assisted on a shark cesarean, but a shark has What? Been Wait, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Just assisted on a shark cesarean. There's supposed to be yeah. a story there. <laughs> I definitely didn't know assisting, should I say. I was like eight or something. Okay. <laughs> I watched it. Yeah, so I think... Obviously, I was quite young, so you don't remember super detail, but a shark had washed up and she was pregnant. So they had to do an emergency cesarean to rescue the shark. Can't actually remember what happened to the baby. I'm hoping in my mind that it was fine. But yeah, so long ago, can't remember the specifics. But yeah, stuff like that, amazing. And she'd get a lot of koalas in, yeah, from the slightly more out of the city, I guess, seabirds and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's just so funny. I think it's hilarious to imagine that like the vet I bring my cat to is like, you know, there's a penguin and uh, yeah. you know, a koala. <laughs> in the back like no yeah. <laughs> and he said your dad was a veterinarian as well did he have a clinic too yeah he was he not anymore he worked more in large animals and then went back into these MBA and is went more in business now uh, working for not-for-profits he worked for guide dogs for a really long time okay now works for beyond blue which is a mental health organization so yeah sort of very different from what he was doing but um, yeah it's a bit of a change for him yeah that's cool so with the larger animals that he's working with was that more like livestock for livestock um horses probably yeah predominantly horses okay cool very cool gosh I sometimes think that I would love to be a vet and then I just imagine all of the actual classes like like everyone tells me organic chemistry is like the worst thing in the world and I'm just like I don't really think I want to go through that Yeah, I know it's definitely challenging. Yeah, I, I mean, I say that even though like you're literally have a master's, so, so, so you've probably been through these classes before. <laughs> so you said that you kind of discovered your your love for wildlife besides the like obvious love for animals that your parents had instilled in you, but you mm-hmm. got more interested in the conservation and wildlife efforts later in life. Do you know what it was that kind of made you decide that? And then how did you decide to get into zoology as your degree? Yeah, so I was pretty all over the shop after I finished year 12. Because yeah, I said I went to like an inner city school and I was caught up in that I guess a little bit I sort of thought I wanted to do something in marketing or PR or something like that and I got a job in marketing and I yeah it was an amazing opportunity and I was really grateful for it but yeah I just really highlighted that I didn't want an office job and didn't really sort of tick the boxes for me so I took a gap year um, out of school and I yeah went traveled heaps I went all through Europe and Southeast Asia and I volunteered at a elephant conservation sanctuary in Laos mm-hmm. I still really loved that wasn't too sure so I started an arts degree but I being really indecisive did half arts half science subjects and I really fell in love with the science subjects and just loved biology so much so I transferred to science traveled heaps like I traveled all through South America Malaysia Sri Lanka yeah, all through Southeast Asia. So I did that sort of really, like, I just love being outside and I love traveling and I love, yeah, the environment and things like that. So then I 
did more zoology subjects, more conservation subjects, and I volunteered sort of all through like not-for-profits, but also hands-on stuff too, through rescue, transport at zoos and stuff like that. So that really, yeah, cemented it for me, I guess. But yeah, it definitely wasn't something I thought I was going to do when I was a teenager. Yeah, no, I, that's a, a pretty significant switch. I work in marketing now, so I can imagine that's a little bit different than, you know, being like in the field doing stuff with actual animals and getting a little bit dirtier than exactly. I do in my cubicle. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about your travel. Cause I think that's, that's one of the things that I'm super passionate about. I've been pretty lucky to travel, but most of the travel that I've done has been more touristy and less like animal focused, mm, yeah. but I'd love to know about kind of how did you find your ways to travel? I think, especially as a young woman, it can be a little intimidating to travel by yourself. And then how did you get involved with that elephant rescue? That's super cool. Yeah, I don't even know how I, I sort of, my first big trip was Europe. And so that was, yeah, a lot of just tourism and things like that. And I sort of, yeah, realized I wasn't super keen on the cities as much and I was more gravitated towards um, the nature sort of stuff. But yeah, by traveling on your own, I did get quite a lot of solo travel and that, yeah, can definitely be challenging at times, as you said, as a woman. It can be a bit, yeah, intimidating and daunting, especially being a bit younger. Like I was sort of 18 when I started going off by myself. So yeah, it definitely did have its challenges. And yeah, it's just sort of through word of mouth, I guess, I knew someone who'd done the Elephant Conservation Center. So that's how I got into that. But so the other ones that I've done, it's like, you've really got to do your research as well on the kinds of ethics and everything, especially working with animals and mm-hmm. ecotourism can be a bit tricky to navigate. So yeah. And people, organizations and things often just very good at disguising and sort of almost greenwashing. So yes, it's definitely can be tricky to navigate. So definitely my advice would just be, yeah, do as much research as you can. Um, mm-hmm. If you've seen someone who's been, even if it's through Instagram or something, just message them, ask them about it. Cause that's probably yeah the best way to know is talk to someone who's actually done it. So yeah, that's like, I think that's such a good point to bring up because the one mostly animal-based trip I did myself was I went to Peru and I went to a river lodge in Peru. And then I went to a research center with, I think it was called Amazonia Expeditions. And I had to do a ton of research to like make sure it's legitimate because it's very easy to find a place that looks really good. And then it turns out not being as great. And then, like you said, like being a young woman traveling by yourself, like there's an added level of, of stress that can accompany that. And I think I was 19 or 20 at the time I was traveling. So I totally get where you're coming from, but it's funny because I've had on more than one occasion, people reach out to me via email and say like, I had to do a whole presentation on this trip for school. And they've been like, Hey, I read your blog post about this trip and I'm interested in going to this lodge. Like, could you tell me more about it? And I think that um, every time it's happened to me, I've been like super excited to tell people about it. So I think that's a really good tip, especially for finding good places and like talking to people who have written reviews or reading every review. And that was like my parents when I first went to Peru, I'd done a lot of travel, but I hadn't done solo travel. And so to like convince them that it was okay for me to go, I like read them all the three star reviews because I knew it had good and bad and I like counteracted it. And yeah, eventually they said yes. I mean, I think I would have gone even if they said no, but it like made them feel a little better. Yeah, no, definitely. Like say for example, this elephant conservation center, what was it that made you like recognize, okay, this seems like a legitimate place. I could do work with them. And then what did you actually do there? Yeah, good question. Um, Yeah, I guess just talking like the person I knew had gone, I knew her quite well. So that was, I guess, really assuring that it was okay. And yeah, I really trusted her judgment and her ethics and everything. So I didn't do like 
crazy research and when they did a little bit more, but yeah, I guess that was sort of easy in that regard. And what we did there, so we did lots of things. Some stuff was directly with the elephants, but a lot of it was sort of maintenance stuff, I guess, as well. So we built, gosh, this is taking me back. It's probably like six years, seven years ago now, building fences for the male elephants. So it's like, they have all huge free range. It's like they have mm-hmm. the whole island. It's on like this really like little island. They have whole free range. But I think by hand, we had to dig the holes um, to put the stakes in. Like it was very old school, I guess. There wasn't heaps of equipment and things like that. But yeah, the reasons we were doing it is because I can't actually remember what it's called, but it male elephants go through like a really hormonal period where they pretty much just lose their minds and destroy everything in their path. <laughs> so just to separate them from the female elephants a bit during that time and yeah, sort of reduce the damage they can do to the whole island they're on because they're on like a yeah free ranging sort of island and elephants actually really dislike their own poo so like the smell of their own poo and things which is fair I guess so what we do is we would mix the poo with like I can't remember exactly what it was some sort of sticky substance and we'd put it on all of the trees to reduce them just destroying all of the trees while they're going through this period sort of stuff like that we do things directly for the elephants like we'd have to do help with vet checks and stuff like that we had like a living vet on the island so yeah it was amazing food prep enrichment every everything like that. So yeah, and it was a really good experience. That's so interesting, especially with that uh, comment about the, like putting poop on the trees. Cause (laughs) I guess, I don't know. It seems like there's a lot of species of animals that like use other poop as like a way of of like getting information you know what I mean like yeah, dogs sniffing each other's poop and everything but that's yeah. fascinating that elephants seem to have such an adverse reaction to it I also love that you mentioned the very first thing you mentioned when you say like working on this at this conservation center is like the manual labor because I think that yeah. sometimes people can glamorize like working at zoos or working with animals and like think that we're just playing with animals all day long and it's like yeah you do get to do that but for the six hours before that you're cleaning up poop (laughs) (laughs) literally and I remember each morning we'd have to like it was so hot on the island and we'd have to carry all of this bamboo on our shoulders up this like I don't know two kilometer long like vertical hills (laughs) yeah it's definitely a lot of hard work but obviously rewarding work as well (laughs) so one question I have and I think you know especially with your background and having like worked at a more legitimate conservation facility is if people are interested in doing like tourism and I know that a lot of times people go to Asia and take pictures with elephants or like go to these Mm. farms where they can like hang out with elephants like what is the you know like how 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 is that normal like is that usually like an okay thing to do or would you recommend people don't do those kinds of things like how does that come across as far as like an ecotourism type lens yeah, so I guess it is really tricky and that is yeah, one of the big issues that we have. It is often hard, especially just for your regular tourists, to differentiate between a reputable and an ethical uh, organization versus like there's so many obviously still really awful ones and often they yeah as I said earlier they do come across and even from the outside going to visit them they come across as this lovely like open sanctuary but then they you know go and lock the elephants up and chain them up at night and you know like it's just so difficult to navigate just really it is just research I mean you're most likely going to find a bad review somewhere that you know, it could be a red flag for you. Yeah. I mean, generally places like the elephants are in captivity in some way isn't great. I mean, obviously there has, yeah, these are, often they are rescues from things like logging and circuses and things like that, which they might not necessarily be fit to go back into the complete wild. But yeah, as I said, the one, the place that I went to, they had like free range of the whole island. So yeah, obviously a bit of a balance, but they definitely no riding of the elephant. It's a huge red flag. Yeah, probably is best to stay away from things like selfies as well. Like you don't know 
yeah, how the elephants will react or how they're feeling or yeah, how, what their life quality is like um, mm-hmm. to be able to take that selfie with them. So yeah, generally best to stay away. Definitely support them if you do. Yeah. Very confident that it is ethical and yeah, it is just really hard to navigate. So it's hard to have a clear cut answer though. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's, I think it's helpful. I think that especially those tips of looking out for like places that allow you to ride them. Like that's a, a pretty quick and like, okay, that's very identifiable. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. So after you spent a lot of your time traveling, you decided that you wanted to do zoology as your degree. So what did that look like as far as like your actual uh, education? So you went to the University of Melbourne and and how long did it take you to graduate? It was a little bit messy. So I started the arts degree because I wasn't really sure. So I added an extra year on um, to my degree. So I did my degree over four years. But yeah, I mean, the first half, the first year was largely art subjects. But yeah, no, I had a really good experience, worked a lot during my uni so I wasn't didn't really get that full-on uni experience where I was at uni and well like a lot of the time like I was very much in and out but yeah it was a very positive experience and definitely learned a lot especially as yeah you get more specialized as the years go on and you sort of can choose the subjects that you're really interested in so yeah it was good so then with your program that you were in is there like a internship program that you go to were you working at zoos or working on research uh teams um, not so much like the uni that I went to it was quite academic. Um, it wasn't like a, I did an internship subject you could take like as an elective. I was meant to go to this wildlife hospital in Darwin, but because of um, which is in like North Australia, but because of COVID, I couldn't go. <laughs> but so I just did it at a local vet clinic. But yeah, there's not really a super formal volunteer or internship. I sort of did all of that through my own like leads and my own connections that I made. Like I went to a few conferences and um, met people and yeah, just really network. That's how I sort of got onto things reached out to people that I'd met and yeah, asked sort of for opportunities. So that sort of made my own opportunities in that sense, I guess. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that networking is such a huge part of it, especially like in a field that is as competitive as zoology or, or similar because, you know, everyone wants to work with animals, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like it's really easy to find people for those entry, entry level jobs. It's, it's keeping those people <laughs> there that's more difficult. Yeah. So when you graduated... Talk to me about how you got your current position. And I want to kind of talk about the zoo that you work with now. So when I graduated, I had no idea what I, my next step would look like. I didn't know whether to do masters, to do honors, to do vet. Like I still like really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I actually quit my job. I was a disability support worker during my undergrad, which was an amazing, amazing uni job and very rewarding. Obviously wanted to get a job in the field. So I quit. And yeah, I mean, I think a lot of other people can relate once you finish uni, there sort of probably is a little bit of a slump, like while you're waiting to find out what you're doing next and waiting for offers, waiting for jobs and things like that. So actually, yeah, it was quite a bit challenged. Just emailed all of the zoos in Victoria. So I was pretty keen on having a keeping job straight out of uni. But yeah, I mean, as everyone knows, it is like extremely competitive and they don't really advertise positions in Australia so much, like especially entry level. I mean, the ones they advertise, they're usually looking for keepers with over five years experience. Amart everywhere, I either didn't hear back or I heard, you know, they like were not looking at the moment. So then it was probably three months and I by that time I decided to do honours um, and I got an amazing team. So it was a really good project. Um, that's why I chose that path. But yeah, and then the, my current job didn't email me. They, I didn't hear from them, but I was like super annoying and super persistent. So I emailed them, I reckon, twice more in those like three months, just being like, hi, like, I'm just wondering if you got my email, oh, buddy, blah. And yeah, our curator uh, emailed me back in March and went in for an interview the next week. And then I started the next week after that. So yeah, once I got 
in yeah it just happened really quickly so no it was amazing yeah and I think that uh I I liked that you mentioned that like slump that comes after graduating because I totally get what you're talking about there like you kind of you're like oh shoot like for so long I've I've identified as a student I've identified by my academic achievements and then like suddenly all of that is gone it can be like very disheartening period of so I totally relate to that because we're the same age I'm 24 too so like I I get it we've gone through similar experiences with that so one of the things that you mentioned is that you were like working very hard to get into a zoo and I I was just wondering when it comes to zoos in Australia. So in the United Mm. States, we have the AZA, which is the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. And it's like a, you know, nationwide um, accreditation service to, you know, find accredited zoos and like avoid the more Tiger King type zoos um, or, or, you know, like street zoos and stuff. So is there something similar in the, in Australia that you're able to use as like a starting point for that? Yeah, definitely. So there's the Australian Society of Zookeeping. I would say the Australian equivalent of that. But yeah, you don't really know, I guess, what you're getting into until you into it. So I think I was just so lucky. Like I applied for so many zoos and some, yeah, I'm not even sure were particularly accredited or not. Like I was quite naive, I guess, at that point. I didn't really understand the system that well. And yeah, you obviously hear stories like in the more you're in the system um, about other zoos. So I think I was really lucky that, yeah, I got in with Ballarat because they're amazing. That Yeah, ethics are incredible and animals are always the top priority. So yeah, very lucky in that respect would be a good yeah, piece of advice to look into that a bit more because I yeah, definitely was a bit naive in terms of that. Yeah, that's such a hard thing to to navigate because it's it's so easy to find a place that like looks good on paper but like isn't actually just kind of like like we're talking about with the travel and stuff you know you really have to do your research even when you're looking for a job yeah and you definitely start getting a little bit desperate too I guess like you know you're so competitive to get these spots so you're sort of like anything with wildlife like I just want to get in so I think that's an element of that as well yeah, that's definitely, I, I totally get that. <laughs> so you mentioned that you uh, like debated going for your honors or going straight to the workforce and you ended up going for your honors. Can you explain what your honors means and like what that consists of? Yeah. So I think it's quite different overseas than it is in Australia, but honors is like a research year. So I think I did one other subject in February, um, just like to sure, ensure that everyone has the basic skills to conduct the research. But yeah, it's like a big research year. Um, you write, yeah, my, I had a 30,000 word thesis at the end, but it's pretty free ranging. So you can just pick your project and you work with your supervisor on that. So I did mine as the way research usually goes. I was supposed to do a pharmacokinetic trial of moxidectin, which is the main ingredient um, in the drug to treat sarcoptic mange in wombats, which is like a, a ectoparasite disease in wombats that causes yeah, substantial welfare issues as well as a conservation issue due to yeah local declines. I was meant to do that, sorry. And then the yeah, ethics got pushed back and it was just not looking like it was going to be able to achieve in the as it honors is only like 10 months or something. So um, it wasn't probably going to happen in that time frame. So I had to do a bit of a switch and my amazing supervisory team was so supportive and helped me sort of find these other projects. So I ended up doing four sort of projects, which wasn't supposed to be the case. You're only really supposed to do one in honors, but because of COVID and everything, everything was so unknown of if I was going to be able to do any of these. So I sort of started them all like assuming that one would fall through or two would fall through or three would fall through, like just hoping that I'd still have one project at the end. But all four managed to get through. So it was a big year, but I ended up doing 
a survey to treaters of psychoptic mange in Wombat about sort of treatment barriers that they face. And yeah, there's quite a lot of discrepancies between the states in Australia um, in treatment and opinions. And there's, yeah, the science isn't necessarily there with the treatment at the moment. So it was just sort of gauging that a little bit. The second one was a pharmacology study of moxidectin, as I said, the active ingredient in the drug um, used to treat psychoptic mange in Wombat. So that was just sort of looking at protein binding, which, yeah, sort of like dictates and free drug percentage, which dictate a lot of the efficacy of the drug. And I did that not just in wombats, but five Australian wildlife species that are affected by mange. So I did possums, kangaroos, wombats and koalas. And yeah, and then the next part of it was Neospora, which is a... Um, another parasite that causes, uh, so the definitive host is dogs and it can cause hind limb paralysis in dogs, but as goes through a few intermediate hosts and one of them are cattle and it causes huge abortion storms in cattle, which is uh, increasing like economic loss in Australia. Um, and people don't really know why. So I looked at the prevalence in dingoes as well as I sort of did a pilot study with the cattle as well. I think that's amazing. I, I, I think it's like really cool that you, you know, went in with four ideas. It seemed to be like somewhat related, like all, you know, parasitic focused and then also focused on on native australian species and that you were able to do all of them so it kind of like brings me to a two uh two-pronged question the first one is i know that primarily now in your keeping job you work mainly with australian native species and then also like you obviously did research on them is there something that specifically draws you to your native species or is that the easiest to like work with and then also what was it that interested you specifically in parasites within these species I think my choices may have been a little bit different if it wasn't for COVID, but I'm that was probably a good thing for me in COVID. So I was really into exotics and I still love exotics so much. Yeah, African animals particularly like find amazing. But yeah, I guess with the pandemic, like I, my research had to be focused in Australia. Yeah, I think it was actually a really good thing because Australia is the leading country of mammal extinctions in the world. Like we have horrible statistics when it comes to our own native animals. And we have so many endemic wildlife species to Australia and very, very unique species. And like, I adore them and I've gotten to know them obviously through my job as really well. And it's just, yeah, I think that has really highlighted to me that although I do want to travel and I do want to work with species overseas, like we are facing such a crisis here in our own turf. So I think it's definitely where I do want to focus my yeah career, I guess, is conserving our amazing Australian wildlife. Sorry, quick question. Is and of course. I'm fascinated. I didn't know that like there was such a, a, a die off of, of Australian mammals. Is that because of things like parasites? Is it habitat loss? Is it, I know that the, the wildfires were probably a very huge factor as well. Like, is it a combination? Like what's really causing that? Yeah, definitely a combination. I mean, each species is different, but yeah, diseases is yeah, definitely one, but probably the biggest one is land clearing and habitat fragmentation. Yeah. So that's obviously the biggest thing that we can do to help at the moment is reducing that fires, dog attacks. Yeah. I mean, the list goes on, but those are sort of the primary ones. So dog attacks, meaning like, like pet dogs. Yeah. So I guess like as the land clearing continues and like we're coming closer and closer into living right next to our wildlife, how dogs and, you know, car accidents and things like that. It's just because wildlife have nowhere to go and that, yeah, interface is narrowing. So yeah, that's like a really big issue, like multifaceted, I guess, with the habitat clearing and yeah, us living close to them and having our dogs, our cats as well. Yeah. Predate yeah. That them. was going to be my next question. I know that like in the United States, like I, I love my cat. 
the love of my life, but I would never let her outside because I like firmly disagree with outdoor cats. I guess in the US, we don't have as much of a problem with outdoor dogs as some other countries. Like I've definitely traveled to countries where it seems like there's a really prevalent stray dog or outdoor dog issue. Are you noticing the same issues with like cats being outside and such? Is there like a strong push to keep animals inside in that regard? Yeah, I actually don't know the law. I think we've just recently, I'm not sure if it's in Victoria, but there was, I think maybe a state in Australia have recently passed a law banning cats from going outside at night. I know there's definitely a curfew at the moment, but yeah. I that cracks me that. up. That's like, that's so funny. It's like, you better be home by 9 a.m. Yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> literally, no. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's obviously amazing that they're progressing into this um, sort of laws and things, but yeah, I should know the specifics. <laughs> No, that's that's okay. Hey guys, this is Jeremy Turgeon from Brassman Reptiles and the Reptile Talk podcast. If you're looking for another awesome source of reptile content, come on over and check Rob and I out. Talking with reptile keepers from around the block and around the world. New episodes air every week and are available on the Brassman Reptiles YouTube channel and all major podcast streaming platforms. We'll see you in the next episode. Are you tired of changing a reptile's UVB light every six months? Well, VivTech Products has the perfect bulb for you. The VivTech SureSun Series UVB and UVA bulb has a typical four-year lifespan with no UVB degradation. That means that your pet will always have the UVB and UVA they need, all while you save up to $400 over the life of the bulb. VivTech, providing a better life for reptiles in our homes and the wild through innovative husbandry. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Wow, that's like a lot of things that are kind of up against your native mammals. And then you mm. talked about these two parasites, the Neospora and then the, what was the other one? Uh, sarcoptic mange. Sarcoptic mange. Can you tell me a little bit about both of those? And like, it was like, what animals are they affecting? Obviously you said the Neosporas mostly and the dingoes, but like, what else are they affecting? And, and what is the end goal for studying these species? The sarcoptic mange, it's actually like one of the most generalist ectoparasites in the world. So it affects literally pretty much every mammal like you can think of, but it's just effect. I mean, there's not heaps of study why, but can sort of draw assumptions from it. It affects wildlife more in general, um, probably due to harsher environmental conditions and weaker immune systems. But of all wildlife, especially Australian wildlife, wombats are the most severely affected. And again, there's no clear-cut answer, but you yeah, again, draw sort of um, assumptions from it. So first of all, they share burrows with each other. So they're obviously in really close contact, but the mites can fall off into the burrow and survive for multiple days in the burrow because they the burrows really provide like a suitable environmental condition for the parasite as they're like quite humid and like low temperatures. So that's definitely a reason. But yeah, there's not heaps of signs as to why wombats are so severely affected, but they are. So basically what happens when they're infected is they start losing their fur and getting really crusty skin, um, which is really painful and sort of like really open wounds. And from it, um, they can get experience blindness, metabolic problems, like thermoregulation problems. They change. So wombats are typically nocturnal. So yeah, they're asleep during the day and awake at night, but a mange can make them the opposite. So they can turn diurnal. So they're awake during the day and asleep at night, which causes like, you know, following issues such as, yeah, high risk of predation and probably less likely to get the food sources as much during the day. Yes, it's a huge issue and it causes, yeah, a death, I suppose, at the 
harsher stages, but it's a huge welfare issue between when they first are infected and when, yeah, they pass away. So that's the first welfare issue, but they have local declines because of this up to 90% in populations, which is obviously a huge issue, but it also does affect koalas. We're seeing more and more of that. It's been documented in dingoes, in um, kangaroos and wallabies. So, but yeah, the poor wombats definitely do bear the biggest brunt of it. So yeah, I definitely think that that's probably the area I would do want to do my PhD in and pursue because yeah, I just, wombats are my favorite animals. I love them so much. Yeah. Um, I can tell with the the picture you have up on the yeah. screen next to you in a wombat. It was actually yeah. funny. I always like to send a message to my close friends. Like before I do interviews, I send them, I usually send like, if it's a public profile, like your biologist profile, I sent it to my friends and I was like, Hey, this is who I'm interviewing tonight. Like if you have any questions, like, let me know. And one of the things that like all of us were not aware of is how large wombats are. Like <laughs> my one friend is like, why does it look like she has an, like, an eight-year-old covered in hair in her arms? And I was like, I think it's a, a wombat, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I was very surprised yeah, okay. by uh, the sheer size of wombats. One of the things you touched on, and I'm just like very curious about how this works, if you know, is that switch from being nocturnal to diurnal. That's like very fascinating because that seems to be something that like I would normally associate with more of like a an issue with the brain. Yeah. Are, are they noticing that like neurological issues occur because of the presence of the parasite? Yeah. I mean, again, it's only sort of the last five or so years that research in mange has really been, yeah, like funded and fueled, I guess. So there's not heaps, um, but yeah, definitely neurological issues, which yeah, they sort of do just start like losing their marbles a bit, if you will. Like they like you can treat wombats with more severe stages of mange because they're just like quite out of it and aloof, I suppose, which is obviously horrible. But yeah, I think I don't know specifically scientifically why they do switch. But yeah, generally, I would say, yeah, they just sort of they like weaken more and more. And so their functioning is just not as great. And they yeah, don't exhibit these typical behaviors that they meant to. <laughs> Wow. That's like alarming because that's such a, a drastic change. Mm, yeah. That's fascinating. So you speaking specifically for sarcopic mange, is that how you say it? Sarcoptic mange. Yeah. Sarcoptic. So <laughs> yeah. are there other types of mange that aren't as bad or is, is that more the general term for all of them? That's the specific one that affects wombats and wildlife. I think there are different strains, but yeah, not so much in like our Australian wildlife. That's the main one. <laughs> Okay. Very, very interesting. And then, so tell me also a little bit more about this, the Neospora then. And then I kind of want to talk about how, obviously with your background in, in researching this, how you bring this into your zookeeping to like, make sure you're maintaining healthy animals that could have these parasites present. So yeah, Neospora is, yeah, definitely. It's like a protozoan parasite, but it does affect lots of different animals and it has been documented in domestic dogs for quite a while. But yeah, as I said, it's not really been touched on with dingoes. There was a study that came out, so 2021, that was conducted the year before. So the Neospora parasite like, causes abortion storms in cattle. So it causes cattle to abort their fetuses early. Oh, wow. Um, oh, wow. So that's, yeah, a huge economic loss. I think it's $110 million a year or something for Australia in that. So obviously the farmers are wanting to know why this is and it's quite sporadic. And yeah, but there's, so it can be transmitted from like vertically, so from mother to baby. So that's obviously a way to maintain the parasite in populations, but just from the sheer volume and the increase, there's not really much explanation to like the vertical transmission alone can't, maintain these levels in the population. So people are wanting to know why and where this is coming from. 
So basically how it works, so there's a definitive host, which is dogs and cattle are an immediate host. So the, the dogs uh, shed like um, oocytes through their feces and then the intermediate hosts, which are typically herbivores, will eat grass that are infected with the parasite and that's how they become infected as well. And then the dogs become infected generally by eating herbivorous meat, so like the cattle and things like that, um, or even wallabies and kangaroos in Australia here. So yeah, people don't really know why that was the case. So a study came out, there was one before that. That one. So there was a study that proved dingo oocyte shedding of the Neospora in captive dingoes. So that was just basically showed that they're able to like shed this parasite, but there was no like evidence that it was in dingoes populations in Australia at all, really. So then there was a study done last that came out last year, found one case of Neospora in dingo feces in Victoria. So yeah, I just wanted to see, like, is this more prevalent? So I wanted to do more samples because this other study hadn't done that many. So I sampled three sort of distinctively different dingo populations in rural Victoria. So yeah, that was feces and blood. So there was, yeah, so basically got those tested for Neospora. Um, and I found, I think it was 13% of Neospora in dingoes. So it definitely did prove that there is Neospora in dingoes. And they could, like, you can't blame the dingoes. Like, you know, can't make conclusive right. statements from this. But it does imply that maybe dingoes are playing a role in this, especially in the rural farms. Like, if the dingoes could eat the deceased cows that are infected and then yeah, shed the oocytes and then the cattle will eat the grass that is infected. So it's sort of like a bit of a cycle that makes sense. I wish our cameras were working because I'm literally like sitting here with my mouth open. Like <laughs> I am just so fascinated by parasites and so absolutely <laughs> terrified. So two questions. With the fact that this can be vertically transmitted specifically with the the cows is, so they're, they're not the intermediary host. They're the they're definitive host and having vertical transmission. Could that imply that like, if humans eat like the meat of a cow that had this neospora, could they then contract it or are we not, you know? No. Like- so yeah, technically the cattle are still an intermediate host. The dogs are still the definitive host. And no, I don't think that is possible. I think it's just through the placenta. Um, maybe if you ate the cow placenta. Um, <laughs> yeah, generally it is just from, yeah, straight from mother. Um, like in utero so then with with the cows aborting their fetuses are you i'm just so fascinated by this and if it's outside your realm of expertise that's fine i'll google it later but um are they thinking that what's happening is that like the cow is sensing that like the baby is sick or is it something like happening involuntarily yeah definitely involuntarily like yeah i'm not sure how much research has been done on like exactly why but it just caused there was something i think it's, it's like a certain week can't remember off the top of my head in the pregnancy that yeah a certain period that that's just when they abort don't know exactly the science but it's definitely involuntary like it causes them to drop them basically wow that is absolutely bizarre nature is like so amazing but also so terrifying mm, definitely yeah it's not something i had really ever thought of would be an issue <laughs> Yeah, that's why I made you repeat yourself the first time you said it. Because like, there's no way that's what she said. Wow. So that's like very cool. Obviously, like not cool in like a, oh, nice, but like in a very interesting way. Uh, Very scientifically cool, I guess is the best way to say it. (laughs) So then my question kind of goes with when 
you're studying these native species, and obviously you had to do a significant amount of research using the droppings and the blood, like you mentioned, were you working with a team to like follow dingo packs or were you sedating the animals and like taking vials of blood or anything? Like kind of how does that work when it comes to, came to your research and then also just like working with native wildlife in Australia? Like are there hoops you have to jump through? So the dingo one was a bit complicated um, because of COVID and sort of restrictions. That was sort of a few different things we did. So a lot of the samples we got were from dingoes that were actually all like wild dogs that were killed during a population control um, measure. So we have a lot of those government instigated, I suppose, control dingo populations in Australia. So unfortunately, yeah, they were often passed away. So what would happen with the person who would yeah do the shooting they're trained to sample so they take the blood and also dissect like a portion of the duodenum and that would have the feces in it so that was a bit morbid but we also got some domestic dogs from rural farms just to see if they were carrying any of the parasite at all and to see if they were maybe responsible as well um that was just a local vet clinic vet clinic sent them through but yeah after the got the samples he'd send them through the vet clinic and they'd be processed by the local vet clinic and then they'd send them to us so yeah wasn't really much time in the field um for the so yeah, which was good for COVID, uh, but yeah, definitely would be more keen to do a lot more field work in the future. Yeah. That's very fascinating that they, I mean, that's awesome that they're able to, you know, use like population control is never like a fun thing, you know, like you understand yeah. it has to happen, but it is always like a little bit upsetting, especially when yeah. it's an animal, like you really love, like I can imagine you do. Um, yeah. But that's really nice that they were able to like use it in a very positive way to yeah. like have a more positive outcome with your research. Definitely. Yeah. It's also a bit tricky, like having multiple handling of samples and things like that. So we definitely did come in, like the quality was a bit different between samplers and that obviously makes it a bit tricky for science in general um, when there's those discrepancies. And yeah, so that was definitely a bit of an obstacle um, that we probably look into maybe doing things a little bit differently. I'm not too sure how, but yeah, for future research in this area is definitely um, probably we'll do it a bit differently. Yeah, that was actually going to be one of my questions. So that makes a lot of sense. So then, you know, shifting gears a little bit. So you did your, it was your honors year. And then you kind of got with your current organization. So can you kind of tell me about what you do, the zoo that you work with, and then like kind of walk me through the life, the day in the life of, of a zookeeper for the species you're working with? Yeah, definitely. I got a job while I was doing honors. So I, well, at the start, so I was only have been doing a few days a week, but yeah, it's so, um, so, so fun. And I love it so much. Very, very rewarding as well. So the animals that I look after in my round is uh, the wombats, the koalas, the kangaroos tree kangaroo quokka and echidna so um a bit of a range but yeah sort of a day in the life I mean it's definitely not a glamorous job in any regard sort of as we were saying it's a start like it looks like you just cuddle animals all day but it's certainly not the case but I like thrive being outside and doing physical work so it suits me so well so morning so you do like a morning check so we'll go and check all the animals just quickly and make sure everyone's there and everyone's safe and everything like that go and do morning feed out so all the kangaroos we feed in the morning and the tree kangaroo and the quokkas and then do morning clean so that's a pretty big job we have 30 koalas nine wombat over 100 kangaroos so it's quite a big job in the mornings um there's only two of us in the round so we yeah just do raking um the koala enclosures we do pot change so you change the waters in the gum pots make sure the gum's all nice for them and yeah it's a lot of health checks so really up close um checking everyone's fine, behaviors all normal, everything like that. Then sort of midday we do jobs that can be anything from mulching, yeah, leveling in enclosures, literally anything that you can think of will be doing there and some enrichment as well. So obviously that's a really big part of the job. Yeah, definitely a part that I really enjoy. 
way. So we should try and, yeah, I guess, mimic wild behaviors, I suppose. <laughs> no, so the koala is probably a less like, but the wombats love enrichment, tree kangaroo and things like that. Very important. And then, yeah, we just do food prep and we pack the gum cart and then we do feed out, which is quite a big job for the koalas. So we feed out over a hundred branches each day, which is yeah, definitely a big job, but yeah, that's pretty much a day in the life. <laughs> It's exhausting to work with animals. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's fun, but it is exhausting. I used to intern at our local aquarium and then I'd also volunteer at our, our local zoo. And you come home from working even just a half shift and it's like the best nap of your life because you're yes. just so tired. <laughs> Literally. You're so tired. So I was curious and like, part of me, this is a dumb question. I just don't, I'm just so fascinated by anyone who can say that like a wild animal that lives near them is a koala because that just seems so... <laughs> Like I've only ever seen a koala once in my life and it was at the Edinburgh Zoo in Edinburgh, Scotland. And it was so cool. And it had a little baby (laughs) and we sat there like God bless my best friend for being so supportive of me because we just sat in front of this like sleeping koala that was doing absolutely nothing for like 20 minutes just watching it. And then we did the same thing for the pandas because I'd never seen one of those either. When you're working with a species, especially a a zoo that seems to have almost entirely native species, how do you prevent non-park animals from like interfering with the the animals that are with like in your zoo? Do you mean like the just wild animals from outside? Yeah, yeah, wild. Why do I say non-park? Yeah, yeah. wild animals. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess the whole zoo is enclosed off, so we've got like yeah, huge. Uh, what are they called cyclone fencing all around the zoo um, uh, okay that would make sense yeah, Fen- yeah. fences <laughs> easy answer fences okay yeah, makes sense. Yeah, fences, yeah. <laughs> we sometimes get possums and things that come in I found one in the koala enclosure the other day and I thought it was a baby koala <laughs> it's got the fright of my life but it was oh a my possum. Gosh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah no it generally doesn't seem to be too much of an issue which is good so we have like a pretty in-depth conversation about like the obvious dangers with sp- specific parasites that are happening in like native species how are you watching out for them within the park and within your captive population yeah I guess not too much of an issue because yeah we so the animals that come in they quarantine uh, they even get vet checks and stuff so they quarantine for a certain amount of time and get make sure that there's no incoming parasites but I guess because there's not you know animals coming in and out it doesn't really seem to be an issue which is good but yeah I mean we obviously do keep an eye on things and yeah make sure the animals are healthy every day but yeah it's just that incoming outcoming is not really too much of an issue that's definitely nice to hear so then I do have another question and I'm so glad you brought it up you mentioned quokkas and <laughs> if you don't know what a quokka is already it is that like very viral little like rodent type creature that always looks like super happy (laughs) i'm so fascinated by them because it's very easy to like anthropomorphize and like imagine that they're like these really sweet happy little creatures but can you tell me about working with them yeah so i really like we have a we only have one quokka at the moment and he's gorgeous his name's peter and he's i think 19 or something does he have that little smile Yes, he has a little <laughs> smile and he's really cute and he's quite shy. So you have to be quite slow with him. But if you're slow, he's just so, so sweet. But yeah, definitely can be fooled because macropods, which quokkas are still a macropod, which is the same family as yeah kangaroos and wallabies and all of those. Um, they definitely can be a bit savage when it comes to things like parenting. But there's this exposed defense strategy that when a quokka is has a joey in the pouch and the predator comes they sort of piff them like it's just to save themselves i guess but yeah oh, they definitely <laughs> don't love that um, 
Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, macropods definitely do have um, interesting qualities, I suppose. But yeah, in general, but Peter in particular, I mean, I haven't had heaps of experience with other quokkas. He's just so lovely. And um, yeah, no, a really pleasure to work with. Yeah. I have such an appreciation. Okay. So is, is a <laughs> macropod the same thing as a marsupial? Um, no, that is a good question. So they're marsupials. Macropods are a type of marsupials. So they're just think, yeah, kangaroos, things that jump <laughs> basically. Oh. Hmm. And yeah, have forward facing pouches, I suppose. Yeah. Other ones too, but there's marsupials. So you get your wombats and your koalas, your tazzy devils are all marsupials as well. Okay. Gotcha. That so that's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. I've had like the unique opportunity. I've worked with a couple different species of wallabies and I I love them. They are so <laughs> fun to work with, but you're right. Like they're cute, but they can be mean sometimes. Like they, yeah, it was hilarious because I worked with, I've worked with some like decently dangerous animals. Like I've, you know, I've, I've worked with venomous snakes. I've worked with, you know, larger species of like carnivores and stuff. But the one animal that I had to like report a bite from was a, uh, a Parma wallaby. She oh just <laughs> totally in a Parma wallaby for anyone asking like the size of a house cat, the smallest yeah. little thing. So cute. <laughs> and I was, I, it was like, I got cocky. I was cleaning, um, an enclosure and the wallaby came over and was like nibbling on my bag that I had like the, uh, shavings in. And I reached down to like grab the bag and it just bit me on the finger. And I remember in that moment oh. being like, Oh my God. <laughs> you have to report yeah. it like you can't because because it, it drew blood and I was like no yeah. it was um, like the walk of shame back to my keeper being like yeah hey I'm so sorry and they're like really and I was like I didn't mean to <laughs> but um yeah you definitely have to be careful like you can definitely get complacent especially with the koalas people are like oh my gosh they're cute and fluffy and most of the time they're fine but I mean they're still animals they can still bite they've got long claws they can still scratch so yeah I do know what you mean <laughs> Yeah, the koalas scare me a little bit, but that's because when I was younger, like it was very common to be like, well, have you ever seen a wet koala? And they show you that like really scary picture of a koala. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's, it's it's so cool. Gosh, I would love to be able to go work with animals. I mean, obviously I have animals. I work with animals all the time, yeah. but like work with them more in a, a better sense. Well, I really like as much as I could talk to you about the work that you're doing for literally hours, I really want to talk about the women in wildlife organization that you have put together. I think this is awesome. I don't even know how I found your organization. I think I just <laughs> saw it on like my Instagram explore page or something when you only had a couple hundred followers and now you're up to like a few thousand followers. You just launched your ambassador program and, and it really seems like it's taking off. So can you just kind of tell me about that and what you guys are doing? Yeah. So yeah, I don't even know where to be in, but it was a bit random starting. I like literally made the account when I sort of had the idea, but yeah. So basically I was like reading papers for my honors right at the beginning. And I came across a paper published in 2020 by Wendy Anderson, which was titled The Changing Face of the Wildlife Profession. Yeah. And the literature review sort of spoke about another paper, which had identified the three main barriers that women face working in the wildlife industry, which were firstly, opportunities for career development, secondly, flexible working hours, and thirdly, a lack of strong female network. And I wasn't an employer at the time, still not an employer, but I, so I couldn't help with the first two, but in terms of having a um, strong female network, I felt, yeah, that I could do something about that. So that's sort of how it was born, how it started. And yeah, I've obviously yeah, really been inspired by women, um, strong women in their careers and particularly women in STEM. So yeah, I sort of combined my two loves for yeah, wildlife and yeah, advocacy for gender equality in STEM. 
that's sort of how it started. But so what we do at the moment, we have our online platforms, which is connecting and amplifying women in the wildlife industry, really empowering women in these careers. And yeah, we have got a um, private Facebook group as well. So women can connect and chat and ask questions and just have that real community sort of sense. And yeah, the other services we provide now, we have webinars, newsletter, they're both bi-monthly. So sort of one on, one off. And yeah, there's obviously so much I want to do, but it's just a matter of time and resources and things. We've got an amazing little team at the moment. Um, So it's just sort of started off with me at the start of last year. And now there's a little team of six of us, which is incredible. And yeah, just love the energy that the group gives. And yeah, it's just really contagious. Everyone is really supportive of each other. And yeah, it's just amazing. It's so fun. I love, I love, well, first of all, I'm like selfishly using it as like a potential list of people to invite on the podcast. (laughs) I want to make sure I talk with you first because I want to, you know, give credit where credit is due because I I know like how hard it is, especially to try to, to bring up women's issues in a more typically male dominated space, you can be met with some backlash. So like, I first want to give props to you for, for taking this step. Cause I know it can be really intimidating, but I would love to like learn a little bit more about like, where do you kind of see it going? And then how can people help out? Because I think this is such a cool organization, such a cool thing for people to be a part of. And I really want to make sure that you're getting, you know, support and, and people sharing your story. Oh, thanks so much. And yeah, likewise, you're yeah definitely doing amazing things as well. So I do really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Um, in terms of, yeah, where I see it going, I'd love to get a mentorship program. Sort of, as I said earlier, like when I was navigating my own career, I didn't really know that this was even a possibility really in a career. I thought you could maybe be a wildlife vet, but I didn't really know beyond that that there was so many opportunities for women in wildlife to have these amazing careers. And especially in university, it was very male dominated in terms of our professors and our like senior lecturers. So yeah, it definitely does send the message that there's not necessarily space for women, these higher roles within the wildlife industry. So obviously do really want to change that. Um, So a mentorship program would be really good for that. Having women and wildlife conferences I'd really love to do that as well yeah where women can just share their papers and we can chat and everything like that sort of continue to grow our rep program and have us represented in as many universities and workplaces as possible throughout the world so yeah we really do have that community and that yeah strong female support network in all sort of areas what else would you love to do there's just so much podcast so yeah I'd love to do a podcast as well Um, you should it's fun (laughs) yeah I like it (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, and just growing our community more. Really want to register as a not-for-profit and eventually it would be awesome to fund scholarships and things to travel women to um, travel into sort of more remote communities and do work there and yeah fun sort of PhD projects and other things like that would just be yeah an amazing long-term goal yeah that's awesome so when I'm thinking about like the platform that I have and the people who are really going to be listening to this podcast more um, it generally tends to be people who are more into like the private keeping of animals or working with yeah. animals in that regard and I think that sometimes I'm speaking for myself here is that I I worry or I want how I can help with conservation efforts or help with, you know, more scientific based efforts when it feels like all I do is keep animals in boxes sometimes, you know? So just kind of curious of like what you see as both the director of this program, and then also just a wildlife professional, the overlap of the private hobby and then the more scientific community being like. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is tricky. So I think often women are sort of assumed to have this more nurturing, more 
caring sort of role. So I think a lot of women do keep animals and rescue and nurture and things like that. So I do think that that's sort of a little bit more expected sometimes than having this more science STEM related careers. I mean, both obviously need a lot of work when it comes to equality, but so I think obviously just loving animals in any form like and s- sending that message that yeah, wildlife need our help and that, yeah, just sort of really that science communication I think is really important in hobbyists and yeah zookeepers and just people who are generally keeping animals really advocating for the animals and spreading awareness and yeah introducing people to your animals and yeah just showing them how cool it is and how amazing wildlife is and that we really need to conserve wildlife and people often you know you can harp on about it as a scientist and say that this is really important but people don't often I guess appreciate it until they're up close with the animal and they can see for themselves how amazing it is. So I think that is really important in terms of zoos and, yeah, people who keep animals. Yeah, just that really getting that one-on-one contact with them is just so important in the bigger picture conservation and the bigger picture science. And people generally do care more when they've, yeah, seen firsthand how amazing wildlife are. Yeah, that's such a good point. Like, I think it's it's easy. The animals that we get to work with on a day-to-day, like even if I just look at my pets, are animals that some people will never see in their entire life, like outside of a book. So I think it can be so easy to become like jaded to the incredible animals that we do get to work with and how we can like use them as like a positive. So for example, my friend Erica Paris, who I interviewed a very long time ago about her work with Chihuahua geckos, she was selling some geckos and needed them brought to a show in Chicago, which is about six hours from where I live. And I was driving up there and she sent them to me the day beforehand to drive them up. And I have a coworker who's like so afraid of almost any animal, right? But she was able to see one of Erica's geckos at my desk because they were delivered to work. Um, <laughs> so I had to pick them up somewhere and like was actually very interested. And like, it was a, it was a cool opportunity to have a conversation. And I think that's that you bring up a great point of like having meaningful conversation and, and talking about the intersection between hobbyists and like wildlife conservation that we can have with like just the everyday person. Mm, exactly. No, it's a very important role. So yeah, absolutely. So as we begin to wrap up and kind of, uh, you know, close out the conversation. So yeah. when this comes out, you're going to be in the middle of a pretty extensive travel, like escapade, I guess. So yeah. can <laughs> tell me a little bit more about what you're going to be doing over the next four months. And if people are following you on social media, what can they expect to be seeing and like the stuff that you're working with? Yep. So it's still a little bit unknown, I guess, for some of it. I mean, I might be long, gone longer than four months and things could change. I'm not too sure. But yeah, the first stint, which I'm leaving for tomorrow, is internship at Heron Island. They've got like a research station there, as I said, in Queensland, in Australia. And they just, yeah, I mean, the research is quite broad. You can do turtles, sharks, rays, like lots and different marine life. So I'm not too sure what I'll be in for in terms of the actual research I'll be doing there. But yeah, I'm just really keen to get as much sort of field experience as possible after not being able to do too much for my honours. So it'd be amazing. And then I'm going to a small island called Quinn Island. And it's, yeah, so it's a turtle rescue rehabilitation and release. So that'll be really good. Yeah, that hands-on experience with the turtles, but also just, I really want to help animals in the wild as much, as much as I've loved my zoo job. But yeah, my passion really does lie in helping the animals in the wild. And as I said, zoos do play an amazing role in conservation and education and things like that. But yeah, that'll be amazing. And I'm also doing a little stint on the Northern Hairy Nose 
Harry-Nosed Wombat program. So that is Northern Harry-Nosed Wombats are a type of wombat in Australia and they're crazy endangered. So I think it got down to only a handful of wombats like in the whole wild about 30 years ago, but they've been growing the population through this amazing program with the main driver being Dr. Alan Horsop, who I've been very privileged to be able to speak to multiple times. So I'm going up to spend a bit of time. They've got a protected area in Rockhampton, which again is in Queensland in Australia. So I'm going to go spend a bit of time with that, which I'm really looking forward to. And then I'm hoping why I'm going to Africa if COVID lets me (laughs) for a month and another research program in Namibia. So that is sort of where I'll be. But yeah, I mean, things could change. And yeah, the times at the moment are pretty unprecedented. Oh my gosh. (laughs) That's so exciting though. Like what incredible opportunities. So are you traveling with your university? Are you following like specific labs or kind of how are you, how are you navigating all these, these trips and and research studies. Yeah. So again, sort of just making my own opportunities, which yeah, can definitely be tough sometimes, but actually some girls that I met through Women in Wildlife that I interviewed on a, at the research station on Heron Island, they, yeah, doing their PhDs there. So I shared their story a little while ago and I've just been following their work and I've just been really interested in it. They've been working on the feminization of sea turtles. So I'm super interested in that kind of work. So I've been following them and I reached out to them and asked them if they had any opportunities there. And they said that the research station does run these internships. So that's how I got into that one. The other one just literally popped up as an ad, the other turtle one. Um, and I applied for an interview and got that one. So that was really good. And then the Africa one, I got through a connection I met at a conference a few years ago and I've just sort of been chatting to her and yeah, was really lucky to get that one as well. So That's definitely fantastic. a lot of, yeah, machine, opportunity making is definitely, yeah, this industry, definitely what you have to do. <laughs> Yeah. So you mentioned feminization of sea turtles. What does that yeah. mean? Yeah. So basically, unlike in mammals and things, when sea turtles are laid, <laughs> the eggs are laid, the uh, gender is determined by the, the temperature. So there's been this huge issue with climate change. So the increasing temperature is causing more females to be born, which obviously really throws off the gender balance, which is continually going to be an issue. So they're looking at ways to reduce the impact, things like uh, watering the sea turtles' nests um, to keep them cooler, to have more males and just sort of controlling that gender ratio a little bit more. Yeah, there's a lot of study going on around that at the moment, which I find super interesting. That's fascinating. And I I feel like I'll have to interview you again after all this is done. (laughs) I'll be so curious. That has to be like nerve wracking though, to do research in like having to do actual trials on a species that is already struggling in the wild, like with sea turtles. Cause it has to be like a level of like, oh, this is kind of scary to be trying to figure out how to change the temperature sex determination of these animals, like literally in the wild as they are trying to repopulate. Yeah, exactly. No, it's definitely right. But it's quite non-invasive that kind of work I suppose because if there's more females and the research didn't work like the tactics didn't work then it's there's no really difference for the turtles but yeah it's definitely a little bit risky yeah oh my gosh well we're reaching the end of our time but I always like to ask at the end if a younger woman approached you and said she was interested in getting into work with animals or, or maybe work in conservation what advice would you have for her Definitely making as many connections as you can. I mean, generally no connection is a bad connection and sort of saying yes to every opportunity that comes your way. Obviously not stretching yourself too thin, but even if it doesn't seem like, you know, your dream opportunity at the time, it generally will like one, look on your resume, but two, often 
the connections that you make through those roles lead on to different, maybe more exciting roles. So yeah, definitely networking and talking to as many people as possible. Definitely don't put yourself in a box too much. I think in conservation, there's so many amazing avenues you can go down. Even if you think you know exactly what you want to do, definitely try and get a range of experience. Yeah. So, cause you could fall in love with something completely different. So definitely try and do that. But yeah. Definitely as a woman, I guess as well, like you need to know that you deserve the space that you occupy and yeah, definitely don't take no for an answer if someone tries to tell you otherwise. I think that's awesome. I think that's so helpful and, and so true. So thank you. I like truly have so appreciated getting the chance to talk to you. I'm so glad we made it work. We only had to reschedule three times to finally get on the calendar, <laughs> but if people want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn, more about women and wildlife where can they find you so our page is on instagram at women.in.wildlife facebook we're just women and wildlife we've also got a private facebook group if you follow the link tree link in our bio on instagram you'll find links to our website to yeah shops all of everything you need you'll find in that link tree link um so yeah definitely check that out Yeah, that's great. And I'll make sure to include all of that in the description of this podcast, as well as your Instagram and anything else that people may want to get in touch with you about. There's some badass ladies who are doing some really cool (laughs) things around the world. So make sure you guys are are taking a look at at the the people there. So Eliza, thank you so much. I really, really appreciated talking with you. Thank you. It's been such an honor. And yeah, I really appreciate you reaching out and your time. And yeah, very, very much appreciated. Yeah, no, this has been awesome. All right. Well, if you guys need to get in touch with me, you know where to find me at Defalco reptiles on facebook and instagram you can follow the podcast at modern medusa podcast on facebook and instagram so eliza once again thank you so much and to everyone listening we'll talk at you next week thanks thanks for listening 